Thank you for letting me be a part of your church family today. It's been uh, it's a joy and an honor for me to, to worship with you and, and to study with you. Uh, it's also an honor for me to, as a representative of Johnson University, to partner with you. Uh, we, we thank you for your support of, of Johnson University. Uh, I want to take just, just two minutes and just give you a little bit more of a sense of who we are. And then after that, we're going to spend some time studying in the 27th Psalm. Um, but Johnson, our, our mission, you saw a little bit about our history on that video. Uh, our, our mission is to educate students for Christian ministries and other strategic vocations framed by the Great Commission in order to extend the kingdom of God among all the nations. Uh, we, we educate students. We're, we're a university. We're, we're fully accredited. We have um, everything from certificates to associate's degrees, to bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and, and PhD level. Uh, we educate students for Christian ministries. Uh, a big part of who we are, we train students to preach, to do youth ministry, children's ministry, uh, worship, uh, missions work. Um, this is our DNA. This is, this is a big part of who we are. In fact, our school of ministry is the largest of, of our professional schools. For Christian ministries and other strategic vocations, while we remain strong in those traditional ministry areas, we also recognize the value of getting students who have a Christian worldview into very strategic places in our culture. And so we, we train students to, to be public school teachers. And we, we have programs in business administration and nonprofit management and public health and journalism and English and history and psychology and communications and uh, all various fields where we feel like we can strategically place believers who can be an influence for Christ in, in those settings. Christian ministries and other strategic vocations framed by the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission of Jesus is, is kind of the litmus test for everything that we do. Any new idea that's on the table or new program, we say, okay, is this going to help us accomplish the Great Commission of, of Christ? Extending the kingdom of God among all the nations. Uh, we try to think very globally. Uh, we, we know that God is at work down every dusty road in every village across the world. And, and we, we want to be a part of that. Uh, we have uh, in total around 1,300, 1,400 students uh, in, that, in that bracket. Uh, we have physical campuses in Knoxville, Tennessee, and in Kissimmee, Florida. And then we also offer uh, a number of programs fully online. Uh, we just graduated uh, about, about 250 students who are, who are going out and doing some really, really neat things for God. Um, it's, graduation is always mixed emotions for us because you, you get close to these students and you're sad to see them go. But man, it's exciting to see what they go and do. Uh, and so this, this, is, this is a joy, and it's what you have invested in. Uh, we thank you again for your partnership and what you've invested in these students and these graduates who, who are going out. Uh, there's, I have a display uh, out in the foyer with all kinds of information there if you'd like to pick something up on your way out uh, or, or catch me uh, after the service. And if you have any questions about what we do, I'd be glad to, glad to talk with you more. So, but let's, uh, let's, let's pray together, if you don't mind, and then we'll, we'll begin to study. Lord, I thank you for, uh, for Johnson University, uh, and I thank you for New Hope Christian Church. And I thank you that we are able to partner together to train the next generation of Christian leaders. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will bless the ministry here. 
uh, pray that all of the efforts, um, all of the programs, all of the love that's expressed in the ministry that happens, that you will empower it with your spirit and that you will give the, the people here the joy of seeing the fruit of the ministry that's done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a little boy. Um, he was in his backyard playing baseball by himself, like little boys and little girls sometimes do. And he had, he had a baseball in one hand and he had a, a bat in the other. His parents were watching from the patio. And this, this little boy steps up and he says, now up to bat, the, the greatest hitter in baseball. And, and so he, he throws the ball up, takes a swing, and he completely misses. <laughs> and so he announces, strike one. Picks up the ball. Now up to bat, the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. And tosses it up. He's nothing but air. <laughs> he, just, he just completely whiffs. So he picks up the ball and he looks at it and looks at the bat trying to figure out what's going on. Steps up a third time. The greatest hitter in the history of the world. <laughs> Tosses the ball up. Strike three. He's dumbfounded. He sits down, looks at the ball, looks at the bat, scratches his head. And then he stands up. And he gets this look on his face. He looks to his mom and dad. says, Mom and dad, guess what? I just struck out the greatest hitter in the history <laughs> of the world. <laughs> there are some days that you win no matter what. <laughs> if you're not the greatest hitter, then you must be the greatest pitcher in the world. There are those seasons in life where it's like the whole world is for you. Every door is open. Everything you try succeeds. No matter what you do, you come out a winner. <laughs> Those seasons don't last very long, though, do they? And then we enter into those seasons where, well, it's as if the whole world is against us. And every turn leads to a dead end. Every door is slammed in our face. Everything leads to defeat. And we could talk about job loss, we could talk about medical issues, parenting struggles, rising debt. And for some of you, maybe even right now, all of this is coming in a, an avalanche. What do you do when it seems as if the whole world is against you? David, King David from the Old Testament, could identify. David's life catapulted between these extremes. There are seasons of David's life where, where everything was victory and glory and everything worked out perfectly, but then right on their heels would come another season of life that was failure, disgrace, betrayal. And when we read the Psalms that David wrote during these different seasons in his life, we see them giving voice to his prayers during those different seasons. And I believe that they also help us give voice to our prayers. And so this morning, we're, we're going to study in the 27th Psalm. And as we approach this Psalm, here's the question that we're going to attempt to answer. The question is this, what do you pray 
when it seems the whole world is against you. When you're at the end of your rope, what, what, what is the prayer that, that is there? I'm going to start with just the, the first uh, three verses of, of Psalm 27. If you have your Bible, uh, flip open the app or open it up or whatever you need to do. The 27th Psalm. And, and to begin, let me just read the first, first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I'll be confident. David begins his prayer by affirming his confidence in God. The Lord is his light, his stronghold. And David says, well, well, whom then shall I fear? The wicked advances, an army presses in, war breaks out against him. Even then, David pronounces, I'll be confident. He begins his prayer with affirmation. Likewise, when it feels like the whole world is against us, we can begin our prayer by affirming our confidence in God. It's almost like beginning the prayer with a pep talk, except it's not the normal kind of pep talk. Normally, we're just trying to build up ourselves, saying to ourselves, hey, you can do this, you've got this, just believe in yourself. But David isn't affirming his confidence in himself. He's affirming his confidence in the sovereign God. God's got this. God is bigger. God is stronger. I believe in Him. And when you're in those difficult periods, you may not feel like saying that. But sometimes our faith acts and even speaks despite what we're feeling. My uh, old, older sister and her family uh, lived for seven year, or several years rather, uh, up in Wisconsin. And the church that they went to there, the, the preacher kind of had this little game that he did with the church. You, you, you may have seen this. You might have even done this. But, but the preacher would say to the church, God is good. And the church would respond all the time. Some of you have done this. God is good all the time. All the time, God. It was part of their culture, you know, they, they did that. There's a lady in that church, a, a friend of my sister's, who uh, worked as a nurse at the local emergency room. And one evening, she was finishing up her shift and getting ready to go home, but the call came in from an ambulance that they were bringing in the victim of a motorcycle accident. So this nurse, said, well, I'll, I'll hang around and, and help. So the ambulance arrived, and they, they wheeled in the, this boy who was, had a sheet uh, covering him from head to foot, uh, except his tennis shoes were sticking out from the bottom of the sheet. And the nurse uh, recognized her son's tennis shoes. He was, uh, was dead on arrival. 
Uh, when the preacher learned of this tragedy, of course, he rushed uh, right to the emergency room. And uh, gets there, goes into this room where this mother is sitting next to the bed that holds the body of her son. And when the preacher walks in, the mother chokes out, God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. In those dark moments, we may not feel like stating that. But faith sometimes acts and even speaks beyond feeling. Something just in the act of speaking it, of, of making it external, allows us to take hold of that faith, of that hope. Jeremiah did something very similar in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah was writing this at a time when, when God's land and God's people were being attacked and conquered, and Jeremiah knew they were going to lose. And so he writes, this is in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. He writes this, I, I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, he's affirming it, he's pronouncing it. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. That, that yet in the middle is, is the key. Life sometimes hurts terribly. Yet. Despite, regardless, even so, nonetheless, we can affirm our confidence in our sovereign, all-powerful King. The doctor found a spot on the scan. The cradle is empty. The project fell through. The drunk driver didn't see the stop sign. The phone rang at 2 a.m. It came out of the blue. Yet, however, despite, even so, regardless, Nonetheless, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Now, this, this isn't the entire prayer. There, there, there's, there's more to come. But take note that David begins his prayer by affirming his confidence in God. And then when we get to the second part of his prayer, David then begins to gaze. Verses 4 to 6 now in, in Psalm 27. Starting verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to 
gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Verse 4 has what I, what I think is an interesting progression there. Uh, David says, I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty. Seek to dwell, to gaze. And then he goes on in verses 5 to 6 that says, because he keeps me safe and hides me and shelters me, I'll, I'll, I'll worship him. All of this in this section is, it's a picture of someone enfolding himself in the beauty and the majesty of God. Well, in the first part of the prayer, we affirm our confidence in God. In the second part, we might not even say a word. Simply gaze upon his beauty. Maybe you, maybe you go out to the back deck and you sit there and the, you gaze upon the beauty of God. You see it, it the, the, the blue sky, the cottony clouds, the, the song of the robin in the morning, the whisper of the breeze through the live oak, the scent of honeysuckle in that, that same breeze. And then in that silence and Surrounded by this beauty, you you begin to reflect on the beauty of God that you've experienced in your own life. That that time when the money that you needed just came right out of the blue, right when it was needed. Uh, That that time when you you uttered that prayer for months and then celebrated when you watched God answer it in such an amazing way. That day when you were having one of your darkest days and your friend embraced you. And in that embrace, you could feel yourself enfolded in the very arms of Jesus. The stain of your sin washed as white as snow. Gaze upon the beauty of God. From a moment that he breathed life into Adam's nostrils and through parting the Red Sea for Moses, his covenant with Abraham, raising Jesus from the dead. 2,000 years of church history since then. God has never gone to sleep on the job, never neglected a single detail, never forgotten a single hair on the head of any of his children. Gaze upon his beauty. A great preacher from the 1700s, George Whitfield, wrote in his journal about a day when he simply gazed on the beauty of God. And in his journal, he, he said this. He said, God was pleased to pour into my soul a great spirit of supplication and a sense of his free distinguishing mercies so filled me with love, humility, and joy, and holy confusion, that I could at last only pour out my heart before Him in an awful silence. I was so full 
that I could not well speak. How do you pray when it seems the whole world is against you? Well, we can begin by affirming our confidence in God, gazing upon His beauty, like David did. But after David gazed upon the beauty of God, there were some things he needed to say. (laughs) And I, I imagine that you may as well. When we get to verses 7 to 12 of, of this psalm, we, f- we find a real change in tone. Uh, in fact, there's even a change in grammar. In, in the first six verses of the song, uh, David is talking about God. When we get to verse 7, David is now going to turn directly to God and plead with God for mercy. So now verses 7 to 12, Psalm 27. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Can can you sense just the the change in, in tone that comes here? Earlier on, David was expressing this joyful confidence in God, and now he's turning to God with this frantic plea for help. And note as David works through these verses, this, this, this quick series of requests. David says, hear my voice, be merciful to me, do not hide your face, do not turn your servant away, do not reject me or forsake me, teach me, lead me, do not turn me over. You can sense David's growing desperation here in his prayer. Whoever it was, or whatever it was, that was attacking David, it was... It was right there at his door. And so David pleads with God, begging God to remain faithful. Once you affirm your confidence in God and gaze upon his beauty, it's certainly appropriate then to plead. God, I need you. You make some amazing promises in your word, promises to bless and guide and protect, promises to to be faithful and to be near, promise to to bring good from all things. Please don't reject me, Lord, like others have rejected me. Please don't oppose me like others are opposing me. Instead, teach me, lead me. I have no more strength, Lord. I see no way out of this. And so I plead with you. Be my helper. This this kind of pleading is not only helpful, 
I would say it's critical to an authentic relationship with God. And, and, what, and what we may find is that when we come to God and plead with Him in these very difficult seasons, and maybe even those times when, when God feels distant to us, we may look back later and realize that God was nearer to us then than we ever imagined. There was a, was a young man, his name, name was John. When he was 13, there was kind of a chemical accident that left him blinded. And, and John said, he said, when that happened, he said, I, I thought life was over. I felt helpless. I, I hated God. Um, for the first six months, I, I did nothing to improve my lot in life. He said, I would, I would eat all my meals alone in my room. I wouldn't even want to talk to anybody. And then John said, uh, one day my, my father came into my room and, and he said, John, winter is coming and the storm windows need to be put up and that's your job. And by the time I get home this evening, I want those storm windows put up. And John said, my father left the room and slammed the door on his way out. John said, I got so angry. <laughs> I thought, who does he think I am? I'm blind. In fact, John said, I was so angry, I decided to do it. <laughs> and I said, I felt my way to the garage, and I, I, I found the necessary tools, and I found the, the windows, and I found the ladder. And he said, all the while, I was muttering under my breath, I'll show them, I'll fall, and then they'll have a son who's both blind and paralyzed. But as John told the story years later, he said, I, you know, I got those windows up. And I found out later that never at any moment was my father more than four feet away. He was there the whole time. When we're going through those difficult seasons, when it feels like maybe God is distant, when we come to him and, and plead with him, we may look back later and realize that God was nearer to us then than we ever could have imagined. But once you affirm and gaze and plead, well, then what? At the end of his psalm, David waits. Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14. I am still confident of this. Uh, David is bookending here. You remember back at the beginning of the psalm, David said, I am confident. Now he comes back at the end and says, I am still confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. David comes back here at the end to this joyful confidence, and he says, I believe that in the land of the living, that I will see the goodness of the Lord. David is saying, I believe that while I'm still in this life, tangibly in front of me in a concrete way, God will deliver me from this dilemma. That I will in this life see his, confidence, see his, his, his goodness. Now, what would David do until then? Well, he says it twice in, in verse 14. What's he going to do? Wait. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart 
and wait for the Lord. This Old Testament word, wait, is a picture of a a confident expectation. Sitting on the edge of your seat, trusting, believing, anticipating that that which you wait for is going to happen. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart. It's, it's going to happen. Wait for the Lord. Read of a, an interview not long ago with some trapeze artists. <laughs> the, the Flying Rodellas is the family's name. And in this interview, they were describing the important relationship in the Trapeze Act between the flyer and the catcher. The flyer is the one who swings out on the trapeze on this high arc, and then at the top of the arc, let's go. The catcher is the one who swoops in and reaches down with strong hands and catches the flyer. Now they said what is critical about this relationship is that that when the flyer swings up to this high arc and lets go, and then as they're just suspended in midair, the flyer has to stay completely still. The flyer should never try to catch the catcher. (laughs) No, the flyer has to stay still and wait in confidence (laughs) that the catcher is going to come. Some of you are in that vulnerable moment right now where you have let go of what God's called you to let go of and you're just kind of hanging there suspended. You haven't yet felt the strong arms of God coming to catch you and you want to start flailing around. Take David's encouragement to heart. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait on the Lord. There are seasons of life where it seems like no matter what, we come out the winner. (laughs) It's a little boy who, if he's not the greatest hitter in the world, he's the greatest pitcher in the world. Every door is open. Always come out successful. But there are those other seasons where every door is slammed in our face, where every turn leads to a dead end, where everything is defeat. What do we pray at those times? In Psalm 27, we learn to affirm and then gaze and then plead, and then wait. You know, when I think about those four aspects of this prayer, it strikes me as I reflect on them that that in a larger sense, these are also four elements of faith. What's faith? We affirm our confidence in God, and we gaze upon His beauty. We plead with Him, and we wait expectantly. It's faith. In fact, ultimately, maybe this is what David is showing us how to do here in this psalm. Pray your faith. 
What do you pray when all the world's against you? Pray your faith. About 60 years ago, there was a, a monk named Thomas Merton. And he, he wrote out this prayer that ended up being published, and it's, you see it around a lot of places. It's, it's often just called the Merton Prayer. But this prayer from this old monk, I, I think, exemplifies well the kind of prayer of faith that, that we've talked about this morning. So I just I want to end our time together uh, by praying the Merton Prayer. Uh, the words are going to be on the screen. You can read along if you want, or if you want to just close your eyes and listen uh, as I read. Uh, e- either way is fine. But let's, let's pray this prayer to our Lord. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end. Nor do I know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will doesn't mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I'll never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.